Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are joining us. My name is Veronique Barbelet. I'm an independent consultant and a research associate with the United Policy Group at ODI. And I will be your chair today for this event entitled Leaving No One Behind, Recommendations for Inclusive and Impartial Humanitarian Action. This session is part of the inclusion area of common concern. Before I continue, if you require closed captioning, please click on the CC, um, CC live transcript at the bottom of your screen to access closed captioning. Today, we are delighted to be launching a policy brief based on three years of research by the Humanitarian Policy Group on inclusion and exclusion in humanitarian action. And this policy brief will be proposing a way forward to improve inclusion in humanitarian action and ensure more inclusive, effective, and impartial humanitarian responses that leave no one behind. Some of you may have been with us last year for the final inclusion session at the United Networks and Partnerships Week, which focused on identifying an inclusion strategy and roadmap. Today's session is very much a continuation of that conversation. So just to run you through the agenda quickly, following a presentation of key findings and recommendations from um, some of my colleagues, uh, Sarah and Jerry and Oliver Loft, we are then delighted to have Elam Yousefian from the International Disability Alliance, Jamie McGoldrick, former resident and humanitarian coordinator, and Sima Chandra, counselor, humanitarian and human rights from the Australian Permanent Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. They will react to the findings and recommendation of this research and share their reflections. Um, and before I hand over to my colleagues, please do feel free to introduce yourselves in the chat uh, where you're joining us from and your organizations. Now, I would like to hand over to Sarah and Oli for the presentation of the key findings and recommendations from the research and I will share my screen. So hopefully, here we are, and share. Thank you, thank you, Vero. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, as you heard, my name is uh, Sarah Njeri. I'm one of the researchers from the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI, who has been involved in this research. And today, um, uh, with my colleague, Oliver Loth, uh, we are delighted to share with you our key findings and recommendations for the study on a more inclusive and impartial humanitarian action. So why, why is inclusion important? Firstly, because uh, inclusion is, imp is at the core of the principle of impartiality. Uh, too often, uh, we've uh, previously, uh, people who have previously uh, or historically faced marginalization, uh, for, for instance, people with diverse sexual orientation and gender identity or older people have a higher risk uh, and are more vulnerable to, to, to crisis. Inclusion is about ensuring that these people are able to benefit from and participate equi equitably in humanitarian responses. Similarly, those who are marginalized within these societies and within societies and communities are likely to be the most vulnerable as well to the impact of crisis. So while at the same time, most at, uh, you know, while at the same time, most at risk of facing barriers, and being excluded from the responses that are, that are put in place. 
Uh, secondary, uh, not considering inclusion or only considering it as a niche topic, as an add-on or as the responsibility of specific actors can result to in, in exclusion of not just individuals, but whole population groups from accessing assistance. It can also contribute to exacerbating or deepening the marginalization and, and disadvantage that people experience in the short term, in, in the short and long term. As such, the failure to include those who are marginalized is a failure of humanitarian action. And this means that humanitarian action that is not inclusive is neither effective nor impartial, nor does it fulfill the humanitarian imperative. So the policy brief that we are launching today and this presentation represents three years of research on inclusion and exclusion in humanitarian action. In this research, we set out to understand the patterns of, uh, and, and drivers of exclusion, including those pertaining to the way humanitarian responses were implemented. We wanted also to understand what an inclusive humanitarian response could look like and why it was not happening. There is a unique angle of this, uh, the unique angle to this project was that it looked at inclusion holistically in relations to the challenges of crisis response, uh, to the crisis response systems in large scale crises. So following uh, a review of the literature and practice, we published uh, a state of play report, which outlined some of the main challenges with inclusion in humanitarian action as well as defining the concept of inclusion. The core of the research focused on four case studies, one in Bangladesh, one in Jordan and Nigeria and the Philippines. And all these were done in partnerships with local and national research organization and researchers. Finally, today we are launching a policy brief with recommendations based on uh, on this research and shortly uh, uh, we, we're going to uh, put forward a final report synthesizing the, the key findings across the case studies. So this policy brief uh, was also very greatly supported by continuous external uh, policy engagement at the HBNW last year and, and this year through convening research workshops with more than 60 key stakeholders of the research on the research findings and recommendations and I Imagine that a lot of uh, those who participated in these discussions are in this um, are represented here today. So, after three years of research, we can confirm uh, what the, re the review of the literature highlighted: that first, inclusion was not very well understood by policymakers, by practitioners, and uh, humanitarian response leaders on both a conceptual and operational level. Secondly that while tools uh, guidelines for inclusion, such as convention, charters and reports all do exist, these are fragmented across a range of policy guidelines. And finally, that while uh, impartiality is a core element of inclusion, it is too often understood as a passive process of non-discrimination, meaning that it is rarely systematically assessed and, and is often assumed. The main solution to these problems is to adopt a clear policy framework for inclusion, whether through an interagency process as, as part of the IAST or 
whether individually donors and humanitarian organizations need to adopt humanitarian policies that are inclusive and inclusion specific. So among others, uh, such a policy framework uh, will do the following. First, it must adopt a, a more holistic and coherent approach to inclusion, inclu which includes the different elements that we've identified as inclusion as impartiality, inclusion as uh, responding to specific and diverse needs, inclusion as equitable access, and inclusion as effective participation. Secondly, uh, inclusion policies must also position inclusion as a critical element of humanitarian action that is effective and impartial. And the third, uh, third uh, point will be that such policies must focus on the rights, on rights and the politics of rights denial. And this should happen alongside technical approaches to support uh, inclusion. And finally, these policies must also outline the, uh, or, or must, be, uh, must uh, provide an out, uh, the linkage, must provide linkage to ongoing humanitarian reform agendas, such as uh, participation, accountability to affected populations and localization, as well as incorporating protection and gender. Our research uh, further highlighted that inclusion is often delayed and deprioritized in large-scale humanitarian responses. And efforts towards inclusion tend to be undermined by focus on, on scale. So here we speak about the quantity of people reached over the depth, that's the quality of the response. And this sometimes may be explicit or implicit. And this might uh, result uh, or results in, in whole population groups being left behind. Similarly, we see um, a leadership that should ensure uh, an inclusive and impartial humanitarian response is often too often missing. This, in uh, this includes leadership from humanitarian coordinators or senior um, managers in operational organizations. Similarly, the roles and responsibilities remain unclear and this compounds or, or contributes to a lack of adequate monitoring and tracking of exclusion in humanitarian responses. And finally, in large scale responses, accountability to affected populations and community engagement tend to be weak and as such can contribute to, uh, to driving exclusion and fostering unequal power dynamics. For example, humanitarian actors tend to focus their community engagement on engaging community leaders and gatekeepers who can have both positive and, and negative impacts. Uh, community leaders and gatekeepers play, do play a key role in facilitating or blocking assistance to participation of different groups. And as such, do contribute to excluding specific um, population groups. So what solutions do we propose? First, Inclusion should be more clearly outlined as a key component of humanitarian country team compacts, as well as in strategic objectives and indicators in large scale responses. This would ensure that not only in, uh, does inclusion uh, become part and, uh, of the necessary analysis that informs this, this response, but that the barriers to access the issues around discrimination are addressed. 
it also ensures that inclusion is the responsibility for all from the start of, uh, of a response. Similarly, if by adding inclusion in operational peer review and, and other response-wide uh, evaluation, there is an incentive to all for the response leadership to make uh, uh, inclusion their responsibility. And secondly, an inclusive response framework should adopt a, a, a twin track approach, one where resources and political capital are dedicated to targeted interventions for marginalized populations, as well as to mainstreaming inclusion throughout the response. So while establishing uh, a, this, uh, a, a, establishing inclusion task forces and deploying inclusion advisory to support the response will help with technical uh, advisory support. The leadership of the response must support approaches with humanitarian diplomacy and advocacy. Without this, uh, without this higher level political clout, some of the sensitive um, nature of inclusion will not or cannot be achieved through technical approaches alone. Finally, we, we propose that opportunities must be provided for marginalized populations to self-organize and for their voices to be heard, including at senior level management in, in the response. In addition, more of the pluralistic approach uh, to communication, community engagement and accountability to affected people must be adapted. This means that engaging not only with uh, this means engaging not only with community leaders, but with the with the leaders of organizations led by marginalized people. Such a pluralistic approach to community engagement is one that includes and recognizes the multiplicity of communities within one geographical area and engages with representatives of these multiple communities. It is also one that is rights based, and that's important. Such approaches should link closely with ongoing reform work on collective approaches to communication and community engagement as part of the IASC accountability framework. I will now hand you over to my colleague, Oli, for the rest of the presentation, and I look forward to the discussions afterwards. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sarah. So a critical part of an inclusive response is understanding who is being excluded and why, as well as keeping track of what humanitarian actors are doing about it. This means having the right information to prioritize what's important and inform appropriate program design. It also means using monitoring and evaluation processes or M&E to track inclusion. So to test if our assumptions are still holding and to provide us with clear definitions of success. The humanitarian sector has made substantial progress in generating more and better data to inform inclusion in recent years. Joint multi-sector needs assessments have strengthened understanding of which sectors and places have the most urgent needs, while area-based approaches have attempted to see needs in a more interconnected way to support more joined up responses. We're also seeing more concerted efforts to incorporate better disaggregated data, so on age, disability, and language, for example, into assessment processes. However, there are still some major gaps. First, information focused on needs is not necessarily situated within a good understanding of the drivers of those needs and how these emerge from the processes of marginalization and discrimination. Similarly, information on the barriers people face in accessing assistance or the capacities they're able to draw on is much less well documented. 
A lot of this is linked to the kinds of information humanitarians collect and use. And in particular, quantitative data, numbers, is heavily privileged over qualitative. This means that answers to more complex questions, such as how aid relates to the political economy of crises, or how response design intersects with social norms, are often lacking or superficial. At the same time, what counts as humanitarian data is often very narrow. Here, despite a wealth of information from other sources, humanitarians often tend to center themselves as the main legitimate providers of knowledge on the crises they're working on. A second major challenge with humanitarian assessment is the way that it can contribute to rendering certain people or needs as invisible. Here, relying on quant data, quant data again can lead to a tyranny of the majority where needs experienced acutely but by a small number of people are buried in aggregated statistics. Certain groups can also end up being cut out of assessment processes because they are too hard to approach safely and appropriately using standard tools. LGBTQI plus populations are the most obvious example here, but there are others. For all the advances made in joint needs assessment, many humanitarians also continue to rely heavily on older male community leaders or other gatekeepers to collect operational information, which creates easy opportunities for bias or deliberate manipulation. Ultimately, invisibility in data poses a particular problem because it is too often taken as a sign not that certain needs or vulnerabilities are hard to see, but that they don't really exist and therefore aren't something to worry about. Beyond assessment, we also found that there was little effort to track exclusion and proactively monitor response-wide impartiality. While many actors may assume protection monitoring will catch people falling through the cracks, Evidence shows that it only catches some aspects of inclusion and not always adequately. Here, humanitarian M&E processes collect huge volumes of data that are potentially vital to answering or prompting reflection on questions of inclusion. However, we found that this information is not always being used to its full potential in terms of informing programming decisions. Critically, inclusion is also only weakly incorporated into how humanitarian actions define success. And here there is still a tendency to focus on output indicators measuring activities or numbers of people reach, rather than outcome indicators that measure the effects of these activities or how they vary across different groups. And this ultimately presents an unbalanced picture of what responses are actually achieving. And even as donor definitions of value for money do factor in questions of quality and equity, a lack of adequate measurement or evaluation of these elements is still incentivizing reaching as many people as possible over and above questions of inclusion. To better inform inclusion, humanitarian responses need to be grounded in a better analysis of what drives exclusion, whether prior to the crisis, during it, or especially as a result of how humanitarian action links with all this. This doesn't mean that humanitarians need to take on the root causes of exclusion as part of their responsibilities but it does mean that they need to better account for them when they think about what needs and vulnerability actually mean and how they could be addressed. More immediately, understanding of needs must be accompanied by stronger efforts to understand barriers and enablers to access for different groups. And both of these challenges can be addressed more easily if humanitarians can do a better job of engaging with and supporting knowledge produced outside of the sector, such as by human rights actors, academics, or local civil society. M&E processes also need to be refocused much more strongly on tracking inclusion and exclusion. This can start with better analysis of existing data coming in from places like food distributions or health centers, asking who are we not seeing, who are we not hearing from, and why? 
One great example we've seen is the use of inclusion audits to take a systematic look at how factors such as disability or ethnicity are looked at across the humanitarian programming cycle. Improving tracking processes also means making space for and supporting marginalized people to make demands and claim their rights from humanitarian. In other words, taking inclusion seriously as a component of participation in AAP. Finally, inclusion also needs to be a strong part of how humanitarian responses define success. From the vision laid out in response-wide strategic planning to cluster level indicators, all the way down to how individual projects are evaluated. Sarah mentioned the problem of fragmentation at a, at a strategic level, and I'd like to talk a bit how it limits um, more holistic approaches to inclusion in humanitarian operations as well. And here again, there is a tendency for different aspects of inclusion to be siloed out from each other and approached through a range of different agendas centered around single characteristics or issues such as gender or disability. But these multiple focuses, important though they are, are rarely framed within a more overarching approach. While the current way of doing things has allowed some slow and steady progress on certain aspects of inclusion, it has not yet led to a fundamental shift towards ensuring humanitarian responses are more inclusive at their core. And there are three reasons for this, we think. First, a fragmented inclusion agenda risks leading to a dead end at the operational level, because time and again, we hear overstretched program teams complain of being overwhelmed with competing demands to do too many things at once. Second, it can lead to the unintended effect of creating hierarchies between different marginalized or vulnerable groups in terms of what or who gets prioritized. And here, donors have played a role in exacerbating this sense of co uh, competition for funding between different inclusion silos, rather than supporting collaboration and coherence. And third, working on inclusion along parallel lines means that an intersectional approach of how different factors can combine to produce specific vulnerabilities in a different con a given context is not yet a serious priority. So again, we're not asking humanitarians to do and be everything here. And adopting a more holistical and intersectional approach to inclusion is not about every humanitarian worker becoming an expert in all aspects of inclusion. Rather, it means better alignment of mainstreaming and specialist approaches, as well as greater collaboration among different actors. At the mainstreaming level, there are clear opportunities for operational actors that have already adopted a focus on a single issue like gender or disability to build out from this to a more intersectional approach. Building on the example of protection mainstreaming, it might also make sense to focus more on identifying common risks and barriers to assistance, rather than taking different groups in isolation from each other. At the same time, specialist organizations focusing on different aspects of inclusion can do more to work collectively outside of their own silos, both with operational actors, with each other, and with local representative groups, to ensure that their work builds on complementary strengths to achieve common outcomes. All of this requires deeper and more sustained funding from donors. And here, specialist organizations, both local and international, remain critical drivers to more inclusive policies and practices across humanitarian responses more broadly and need to be properly supported in their work. The policy brief we're publishing today provides a number of recommendations targeted at different actors. And three seem particularly critical to us, and I'll leave you with those before handing over to our great panel of speakers. First, Without a clear policy on what inclusion means and what it entails for different actors, there is little chance that humanitarian responses will become more inclusive and thus more effective and impartial. 
As a driver for coordinating and setting standards, the IASC needs to adopt a clear policy on inclusion, which donors and humanitarian actors can then incorporate into their own work. Second, responses need to be rebalanced towards quality and equity and away from crude metrics of quantity. This is going to involve rethinking how responses define the terms of success, along with what types and sources of knowledge are important to understanding if they're being met. Third, responses need to adopt a more rights-based understanding of needs, vulnerabilities, and capacities. This requires linking the things that people lack, like food or education, with their basic rights, with how these are being denied or upheld, and via what means. It also means reframing participation as a fundamental right, rather than just as a means to ensure operational effectiveness. I'll stop there. Thank you very much for listening, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more reflections from the panel and from all of you in the discussion. Great, thank you so much, Oli and Zara. And I would like to now turn to Elam Yusefian. Elam is the Inclusive Humanitarian Action and Disaster Risk Reduction Advisor at the International Disability Alliance and the co-chair of the Reference Group on Inclusion of Persons with Disabilities in Humanitarian Action. Elam, it would be great to hear from you, your reactions to these findings and recommendations and also what you think are some of the main challenges and opportunities for inclusive humanitarian action and how these recommendations should be prioritized. Over to you, Elam. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's my honor to be in this uh, important event right at the start of the Humanitarian Network and Partnership Week. And I uh, really look forward to all the conversations that we will be having uh, around different uh, aspects of inclusion and other parts of humanitarian action. Hopefully, uh, by the end of these weeks, uh, we are going to be able to um, um, achieve some great um, ideas and recommendations on our way forward. Um, I want to start by congratulating the audit team on this uh, fantastic um, uh, policy brief and uh, looking forward to the full report. Um, many of the recommendations are uh, actually um, very helpful and what we have already uh, realized in our conversations and uh, analyzing the humanitarian action and how it is inclusive. I want to start by the last point actually that um, uh, Oliver put forward, which is about right-based approach. This is exactly, in my opinion, the core of the problem. Because, uh, and the core of the solution. Because if uh, those who are putting forward the budget, those who are putting forward the projects, those who are in the design level, program level, as well as everybody who is on the field, look at the issue of inclusion from right uh, perspective uh, and as a right for human beings, then I assume that many of the uh, things that we are facing will be on the way to be um, over overcome. Um, for example, we specifically heard about the right to participation. So it's not like doing something fancy or nice to invite people who are affected by a humanitarian crisis to participate in the solution. It's their right and it's our responsibility. So looking in, into it from that perspective, I couldn't highlight it more, especially for groups of persons with disabilities, because it is um, traditionally assumed that a person with disability um, doesn't um, have the 
capacity to analyze the situation. And we, as the responders or humanitarian actors, we are going to do what we think is at their best interest which is actually uh, one assumption that we really all need to work out to um, overcome. Every human being uh, should be able to express their will and preference. And we as responders, even in the most emergency situation, must prioritize looking at their uh, will and preference rather than what we think is at their best interest. Um, another point that I wanted to highlight is about intersectionality. So it is something that I would, I can highlight more is that if you hear from one person with disability or one woman or one LGBTQI community person that yes, the program is inclusive, it doesn't mean that it's the case for everybody because we all have very uh, various features that uh, makes, it, makes it quite complex. So uh, adopting intersectionality approach, looking at people's identity and not making assumption that including one means including everybody is very crucial. Um, that's why I always uh, um, highlight that uh, we need to adopt inclusive approach to inclusion. Even all of us work in a specialized organization like myself who work in organization advocating for rights of persons with disabilities, must advocate for all different groups of the society, women, children, youth, older persons, indigenous people, ethnic and racial minorities, LGBTQI communities, and everybody else. So coming, so uh, adopting inclusive approach to inclusion. And um, finally, it is true that creating the task force on inclusion and providing inclusion advisors is great so that everybody can turn to them to uh, find out um, how to address uh, exclusion and how to make sure that everybody is included. But at the same time, inclusion is responsibility of everybody. So I cannot assume that anyone in this call right now, there is even one person in the call right now that cannot do anything and does not have any responsibility about inclusion. Um, so I think while task forces are important and they should be in place in every humanitarian country team, at the same time, we should all understand that inclusion is responsibility of every single person uh, working in every single sector or level of humanitarian response. And finally, um, Inclusion needs money. So uh, it is important to allocate enough funding. In this area, I want to highlight the issue of accessibility and provision of reasonable accommodation for persons with disabilities. So for example, you cannot include a deaf person without hiring international sign interpretation. So it is important that when setting aside budgets for humanitarian response, budget for accessibility, budget for inclusion, um, be set aside and uh, taken into consideration. And do not wait for data. It is true uh, that uh, we need in data uh, disaggregated based on gender, age, and uh, disability and other diversity factors. But um, in every population, there are women, there are children, there are people with disabilities. 
World Health Organization says 15% of the world population are people with disabilities. And in, in emergency context, this number goes higher because of the um, injuries that may happen and also because of um, ad additional aggravated barriers that people face. And uh, it is estimated that the number in emergency situations goes up to 20%. So we don't need data to know that the group that we are targeting includes um, people with disabilities, includes uh, underrepresented groups and marginalized groups. So uh, that's exactly where assumption helps. Thank you so much. And I would be happy to contribute in the um, uh, questions that um, people on the call may have. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alham. Um, and I think you, you made some very clear messages here around inclusion as rights, the right to participation, not being a nice to have, but a right, <laughs> um, and the responsibilities of all, but also not underestimating the capacity of people and therefore calling on their capacities to contribute to the response. So thank you so much for this. I would now like to turn to Jamie McGoldrick, who is a former resident and humanitarian coordinator. Again, from your experience, um, and, and you've been in the senior leadership of very large-scale and complex humanitarian responses, what are some of the challenges that humanitarian coordinators might face to implement these recommendations? What opportunities do you, do you see? And what, um, which way would you prioritize some of these recommendations? So over to you for your reflections. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Veronique, and thanks to ODI for the invite. I mean, I think the ODI report is correct when it states that the issue of inclusion is not well understood in the field, especially. I think looking at the through impartiality and leaving no one behind doesn't cover inclusion or exclusion. There's much more than that. I mean, I'll speak basically on the field perspective. And there are lots of pressures on humanitarian coordinators and leaders in the humanitarian country team to get scores on the board, to get higher numbers, to reach more people, get bigger percentage of the population affected. And we do stress the need for a disaggregated approach, focusing on children, women, et cetera. But I think and sometimes even elderly and people with disabilities, but for the most part, it's not as regimented or anything It's ad hoc. And I think it's a case of breadth over depth of response. And that's the way it's constructed as a system. And this is especially, as I mentioned earlier, especially by donors who want to see contributions meet, meeting more quantity over quality. I think the, the report and some of the challenges of the report highlights the leadership issue. I think there is weak leadership in the humanitarian system um, for lots of different reasons, especially in emergency settings. And um, they block or do not enable a move towards a more qualitative inclusion. I think to change this, uh, leaders in the field have to be encouraged, have to be incentivized and obviously supported. Uh, we see in the field and humanitarian coordinators, in my own situation, a, a lot of increased pressure on humanitarian coordinators to perform and lead in many different aspects of that response, including gender scorecards, PSEA, protection, gender, uh, AAP, and now we have now inclusion. And I'm not sure this could be sort of more streamlined or better packaged by the system because it's putting a lot of stress uh, on a, an individual to deliver on that. And I think that doesn't necessarily work. And I think if it was more coherent and maybe streamlined, it could be led better by those individuals. And I think with that would come better advocacy and better communication, which is not always the case. I think there's an... A need for us to shift the way we think of uh, dealing with communities, as was mentioned in the, the report, community engagement. 
Um, we have a one-year HRP, HNO funding cycle mentality, and uh, that's driven by donors, the response. And we look at year to year. And for the most part, in, in crisis situations, situations don't change that much. I think uh, the numbers go up sometimes, but it's a kind of constant. What we don't address um, are the root causes, the, you know, the, the social imbalances and the poverty are, are there because I think there's a need to analyse differently. We need to improve the capacities of communities to try and support and address the crisis in terms of proximity. They are the affected population. We should engage as humanitarians in a more development approach towards communities, uh, not going in year by year uh, and then leaving. You know, just I think we have to find a way of engaging differently and then redu thereby reducing the need for expensive international assistance and support handing over uh, responsibility and resources to uh, the affected populations. And I think uh, as part of our engagement in a, in a crisis, in a crisis setting, we should have an exit strategy and not go in year by year and think in terms of a different way of doing it. So we can actually, I think, not undermine the ability of communities themselves to get back on their own two feet again and uh, respond uh, in a more development context. You know, it's important that inclusion is spelled out and contextualised for humanitarian leaders and humanitarian country teams. And this, I think there has to be a better understanding of the crisis. Who are the stakeholders? Who are the local actors? Where the power dynamics are, the root causes, the drivers, the triggers, and obviously the, the, the absorptive capacity of, of communities and thresholds within communities. We don't invest enough time in understanding this. And I think that's because... We, as was mentioned, we have an understanding of what's needed. That's not the case. Big international organizations are keen to celebrate uh, localization, but in reality, I think they do very little to empower, fund and resource local actors to take over an expensive international-led operation. And um, I think that, uh, you know, we have this mentality in the international community that we know best and we have a template already pre-designed before we go there. And we see local actors as implementing partners rather than partners are based on principles. I think uh, the recommendations are clear and obvious, but I think that we need to try and package uh, the, the demands on humanitarian country teams and humanitarian coordinators to not to overburden them. And I think we have to find ways that, I think that some, some emergencies, there are serious issues with the impact of uh, counter-terrorism legislation and the way it impacts inclusion of local organizations and the response some key donors in my own con my own experience in places like Gaza, there is a real reticence of uh, donors to allow local organisations to get in there because they are seen to have political affiliations. And uh, but these are the same donors sometimes who are calling for more localization. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. I mean, getting at the local level, local actors involved and get local governments involved is sometimes difficult because um, it's a challenge. Um, because sometimes governments play an actual part in the, the conflict and natural disaster settings in Nepal, in my own case, that wasn't necessarily the situation. Um, existing country level uh, coordination mechanisms, they're not good at facilitating national actors and national communities and uh, local communities. Um, there's lots of reasons for that. I think there's a lack of understanding of the system on the part of local actors, and understandably, they don't. There's not engagement, lack of incentives for these actors to participate, and national actors are sometimes not viewed as having an impartial approach to a community or the crisis itself. 
And a lot of the coordination meetings, the language is wrong. That there's, I mean, in Pakistan, the earthquake when I was there, there were, a lot of the local actors couldn't join because they didn't understand English, and we didn't do enough to engage them in that regard. And the membership of country teams and clusters is a strange thing for local actors. We have to do more work on that, and it's not clear um, how that's how that's done. And it's basically done by international organisations bringing their favoured national NGO and. So anyway, I think most crises we work in, the capital city is the centerpiece of coordination response, be it from Venezuela, Nigeria, Yemen, Afghanistan, whatever. And there is a need to decentralize coordination. And I think uh, putting responsibility closer to affected populations and having sub-national hubs, I think would help determine, you know, how local actors can get more engaged. And uh, rather than that being pivoted towards the capital, it's actually looking at the local areas and looking at the coordination architecture in a more appropriate way. I think this would lead to better programming. And I think it would also lead to bringing more communities in at a local level support. And I think help to expand the local capacities, the local capabilities. And I think it would improve in uh, inclusion of those actors as well. And the sub-national uh, hubs, these localised, would have to be designed to increase access and inclusion and ownership by the locals. And devolving in coordination and planning to the local level um, has to be done in a more consistent way as part of the drive for localization and accountability to affected populations. And I, I think it's important that we don't walk away from that. Um, there, there is a reticence, I think, in the international community to devolve authority from the capital to these uh, hubs, subnational hubs. And, um, you know, I think there are power dynamics in the international humanitarian system that don't lend itself well to uh, moving in that direction. And it's, it's uh, I think there's a serious gap in policy guidance and how that should be done. And I think that's something that has to be. I mean, clearly, clearly we hear since the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016, this call for localization, call for um, accountability of affected populations. But I, I would personally say this is lip service um the, you know the, the isc is pushing for more policy on these issues and uh, trying to bring sort of programmatic sort of pragmatic guidance to bring about improvements i think this odi report hopefully um addresses some of the growing demand and pressure for more inclusion and based on a sort of principled approach to capacity resource and empower the relevant local stakeholders and actors and sometimes the authorities and so that when you have a response at the community level, it is the, the, the relevant and appropriate level of response. And it's not one the internationals has determined is appropriate and relevant. However, I would caution with the current resources that are out there in short supply and the increased competition with all of the disasters and emergencies that are out there, I'm not sure international organizations will be willing to shift their emphasis and funding to empower national and local actors the only time that happens, I think, is when there's a threat to the internationals and uh, you, you don't want your internationals put in a position of, of crisis or danger. And that way you're more energetic about making uh, local actors involved at the front line. And I think this ODI report, I'll close just by saying, I can't think competition is, is more the case than collaboration at this point. And thanks for this ODI report. I think it's a welcome and timely contribution to this debate to make inclusion and local actors much more engaged at the, the, the operational level. Thanks. Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, and I think one of the things that we found also through this research was that within 
um, national and local response ecosystems, you also have marginalization. So often, even within, um, you know, where you have maybe more local leadership, then women headed, um, women led organizations or organizations of people with disabilities, maybe um, even further um, marginalized from decision making and from the ability to contribute to the response. But thank you so much for these reflections. I would like now to turn to Sima Chandra, who is the counselor for humanitarian and human rights at the Australian Permanent Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. Um, great to have you, Sima, on board. And um, I'd love to hear your point of view from um, a donor. Over to you. And, um, thank you to OEIHPD for the opportunity to be involved in this um, in this this presentation and speak to the really thought-provoking research um, that you've uh, that you've delivered. Um, and also to my fellow panelists who provided some really uh, rich conversation and and reflections on, on some of the research. Um, Australia is really proud to have been supportive of um, APG integrated research for the last um, several years, and um, and this this um, oops, sorry I think I've lost my video. This um, oh, apologies looks like there's some issue I with video, but I'll just keep going. Yes, I think it's just maybe the sound issue, so just go ahead. Okay, sure. I can I can turn down. Apologies. Um, so um, yeah, so um, I think the main story I'll go apologies. Um, I think one one thing just to point out is that the that Australia support um, has covered this uh, this research on inclusion as well, and it's um it's really resonated in terms of um, my own experience, but also that of my colleagues um, within DFAT. So we were all really pleased to have this research and think through what what it means for us as donors. Um, we're really happy to see that the research includes specific recommendations for all humanitarian actors, including donors. Um, I think Ellen pointed out very um, articulately that this is a responsibility for everyone. So, um, so it's something that's really um, pushing us to think think about um, about how we implement. Um, I was reading today. The um, the challenge wasn't really to come up with something to say, but to pick what to focus on. Um, I think there were three main issues, though, that I'd like to talk about, and I know it won't cover everything, but hopefully it, it provides a bit more of a context in terms of the donor perspective. Um, so the three main issues that I wanted to talk about, drawing on some examples from Australia's um, humanitarian program. Uh, the first one is, is the interconnected policy priorities of localisation, participation and inclusion, and how it's impact on Australia's policy thinking and humanitarian programming. The second is the significance of understanding context to delivering on inclusion. And the third is some thoughts on the findings regarding donor focus on particular forms of discrimination versus broader approaches to inclusion. Um, so in terms of the first point, localisation, participation and inclusion. Um, localisation became a key humanitarian policy reform for, um, for Australia um, in early 2020. Uh, around that time, um, we'd signed up to a lot of different uh, um, agendas, uh, but we, we realised that to really have an impact, we needed to focus our resources in on, on one particular thing, not to the exclusion of others, but, but we really wanted to sort of uh, focus intellectual and programming energy there. So around that time, Australia was grappling with what the pandemic would mean for the delivery of assistance across our development and humanitarian fields. So the guiding policy document for the Australian Development Program during that 
pandemic was, is called Partnerships for Recovery, and it included an increasing focus on the localization of our assistance in COVID-19 response and recovery phases. So looking at that document with the background of the HPG paper, it's really interesting to consider how um, DFAT's working definition of localization, which featured um, in a note, guidance note for staff and partners on our approach to localization, um, connects with some of the points in the paper. The definition, it says, at DFAT, localization in development is understood as a method to drive more effective development outcomes by improving the agency of affected people and local actors, including partner governments, so that development action is locally informed, locally led, and meets the needs of local people. Most importantly, good localization is driven by an intention to localize. So two observations, I think, regarding Australia's policy settings. The first is that localization is framed by other priorities, and it includes elements of participation and accountability, but also inclusion and there's an overarching um, aim of, of effectiveness. Um, in the second point, I think, is just to note that intention is at the heart of progress on localization for DFAT. And I think that points to the argument in the paper that inclusion must be more intentional to shift the dial and, and to make a bigger difference. So in terms of examples, Australia's multi-year um, humanitarian support in Bangladesh provides an indication of how these can intersect in practice. Um, a package of support includes funding to UN agencies, international and, national, and local and national NGOs. Um, in terms of, uh, I think what Jamie talked about is incentivising um, action on, on these kinds of issues, partners are required to submit an action plan on both localisation and gender equality, disability and social inclusion each year. And the aim of that was to focus efforts on these issues, which we consider a priority, without having to earmark funding, which we don't want to do, um, to retain flexibility. So to strengthen impact, um, DFAT supported partners to deliver plans through joint, partnership joint partner workshops on JEDC and localization last year. And the idea of that was to capture and share learning in implementation. And I guess there's a few points that came out of that. The first is that funded partners, as well as local downstream partners, were, were involved in that conversation. Um, we included sessions that were facilitated by inclusion specialised agencies, including disability inclusion, but other specialised agencies. And I think one of the outcomes that we, um, that we saw was that the, the group was able to jointly agree on priority indicators for monitoring JEDZ outcomes in line with the context and drawing on local knowledge. So it's, it's not something, I think, I think it's, is this a clear framework? I think it's still being worked on. Um, it's an evolving process, but it does demonstrate, I think, that donors can play a leadership role in helping to connect the dots between interrelated policy agendas and that localization can be one lens with which to work towards other related agendas like inclusion. So on the second point I was going to speak about, which is the importance of context. And I think Jamie's focused on this a little bit as well. Um, Australia's got a number of different policies that frame our thinking on inclusion. They include policies on gender equality and women's empowerment, um, LGBTI, um, you know, advancing the rights of, of LGBTI people globally, an Indigenous diplomacy agenda, child protection policy and disability inclusion. But we also know that we have to take a holistic and flexible approach to meeting people's need in crisis, otherwise we'll fail in our role as an effective humanitarian actor. So we're starting to move towards a much greater focus on intersectionality. Um, given that marginalisation 
derives from multiple intersecting factors, you know, it's important that we understand the context in which we're working. And as the HPG paper suggests, not only to inform inclusion, but also to track exclusion. So to share an example of, of, um, of where you can see some of this work coming together, um, it's, it's around Australia's support for meaningful refugee participation. And this, um, this piece of work, I think, it's it strengthened after the Global Refugee Forum in 2019 where we joined a joint pledge on the meaningful participation of refugees and host communities in decisions that affect their lives. It's a multi-stakeholder pledge. It includes donors, implementing partners, as well as refugee-led organisations. Um, and on that agenda, Australia is supporting the University of New South Wales Forced Migration Research Network, as well as refugee-led organisations in Bangladesh, Malaysia and Thailand to look at ways in which refugee participation can be applied in our programming in protracted crisis contexts. And it's particularly looking at ways to empower, protect and give agency and leadership to women and girls. So in the field, this is focused on effective responses to sexual and gender-based violence in refugee contexts. And its aim, aim was to deliver through refugee-led approaches. Um, and I guess it also gets to that point Jamie made about seeing, seeing um, you know, local partners as, as, um, and refugee-led organisation as partners, not just implementing contractors. Um, but the context really determined the extent to which refugees were able to lead. And I think this is something that, that comes back all the time, it's context. Um, in Bangladesh, the environment was probably less conducive than in other place, places like Malaysia and Thailand. But the intentional approach did mean that there was some degree of participation that was integrated into all of the program responses on SGBV, even in the most restrictive of circumstances. So I guess it's just to say it, it, it challenged us to think about how we can push these approaches in larger humanitarian partnerships and generate momentum for change, even when policies and environments are really restrictive. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to note about in the paper that, I, that sort of sparked interest was about, um, you know, the inclusion agenda, along with other related agenda, agendas, are about challenging structural power imbalances. I think that's a really interesting point um, it's because clearly challenging structural power imbalances is a highly political process, um, but also the paper rightly points out that humanitarian responses are often quite shy to engage in these complex community dynamics. So, you know, building on sort of some of the things that Jamie and Ellen said that, that um, you know, moving towards a more development-related approach, I guess I've got a question which is, um, there's a recommendation in the paper, I think, to humanitarian organisations to adapt and tailor programs based on any interrogation of data and analysis. And I'm wondering if this is something that you also see as important for donors to do. Um, I think there, there was, Oliver's made a point about, you know, the, the um, contribution of potentially political economy analysis in some of those things. And I, I guess that would be my question for you. And uh, I'm having worked on the development side as well, I, I guess I wonder sort of, iterative adaptive programming in the humanitarian sphere, which draws on context to continually assess problems and address them. And I, I ask this in part because um, we have an element of our Bangladesh package which is flexible and isn't allocated at the beginning. It's a multi-year program. And that has enabled us, for example, to fund ground truth solutions to do some work on you know, broader ideas around whole of response feedback for affected populations in the Rohingya response. It's a small project. It's by no means going to like completely revolutionise everything. But I mean, it, it allowed us to be able to take those opportunities, and I think there's something there interesting there. Um, the third thing I just wanted to talk about was the specific inclusion agenda versus broad inclusion agenda, which I think is a really interesting point and definitely generated um, a lot of discussion. I think amongst my colleagues um, in the donor um, in my in my own organisation. 
Um, you know, because I think there's a there's a there's a good warning in there. I think for us to be wary of creating hierarchies between different forms of discrimination by you know supporting making sure we're supporting greater diversity, and it really gave us food for thought. Um, Australia, for example, is, is quite a strong advocate on the inclusion of in humanitarian action with a particular focus on gender equality, disability and social inclusion, which is broader. But clearly those first two categories are some of the ones that have been pointed out as the, um, as, as the more, um, I guess, the ones that get more attention in the, in the conversation. Um, so, for example, the Australian Humanitarian Partnership, um, which is a, a consortium of NGOs, um, delivers a, a $50 million disaster ready program. And it's, it's all about disaster preparedness in five countries in the Pacific, which is Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, PNG and Timor-Leste. Um, and one of the core objectives has been to ensure the rights and needs of people's, people with disabilities, as well as women, youth and children are being met in disaster preparedness. And the identification of those groups was really um, done in terms of a, it was prioritised as part of a context and sectoral analysis which highlighted that they are the, they're the groups that have less access to resources and decision-making and are more likely to experience harm and exploitation during disasters. So just to say, I mean, a, a big part of it is about, while, while we had that focus on particular issues, it, it, do, it did generate a bigger conversation. And I think um, one of the outcomes that came from that process was that um, uh, there was a strong partnership with a really strong um, uh, Timor-Leste National um, Disabled People's Organisation, and they did they got involved in the um, rapid assessment of households. They provided technical advice and worked with Oxfam to rebuild accessible homes for people with disabilities who'd lost their homes during a flood response. And then those actions were taken on by the government of Timor-Leste to try and integrate disability data collection into their assessments. So it's it's sort of had a bit of a flow-on effect um, beyond what we could have possibly done within our own program. Um, another example which I think is interesting, uh, which shows probably where support for gender and disability inclusion is not necessarily mutually exclusive, um, is, is again looking at context. There may be some areas of inclusion which are easier, in, I put that in inverted commas, um, to implement than others. And then is there an argument to say where you can move on some of these issues, there's possibility to move on some of the more, um, more difficult issues in terms of, um, you know, the environment or the cultural framework in which you're working. And I, I think um, looking at sort of um, the recommendations about twin tracks, for example, I mean, can a good gender and power analysis unearth multiple intersecting inequalities and how can donors and other actors work on, like, draw on these to, to inform responses in practice? Um, again, from the Australian perspective, we had a, a gender disability and inclusion analysis that took place in Fiji after the compounding effects of COVID-19 and cyclones. And it was, it was um, again, through the Australian Humanitarian Partnership and co-funded by us and ECHO. And it basically found that shocks exacerbated Fiji's pre-existing inequalities. Um, and that included women, women, but also people living in poverty, elderly populations, people with a disability, and people of diverse SOGS were most affected in those crises. Um, and one thing that's really interesting, I think, about that whole process was that it was highly inclusive and that was the key to the quality of the analysis. And it gets to Ellen's point, I think, about um, ensuring broad inclusion in some of this work. Um, so as the paper suggests, the data was interrogated by all these different groups um, who came together and they analysed findings and they identified recommendations. Um, and that, which included working with 
not just disabled people organisations and the um, persons organisations and women women's rights groups, but also um, groups that worked with uh, diverse SOGESC people, as well as faith-based networks, government ministries, and the Council of Social Services. So I guess that just gets back to the point um, in the paper regarding the importance of intent. And if we're deliberate and explicit and intentional about inclusion, can you extend some successes and openings that you, you might find on diversity beyond specific marginal groups to ensure that you, you take a more holistic view um, in terms of humanitarian assistance? Um, I feel like I've already spoken too long, so I won't go on for too much longer, but I just wanted to also just to say, you know, I think this, I agree with other speakers who have just said, I think this report really builds on a momentum. Um, and I think the demand is there for, for inclusion, for localization, for participation. So it's a really exciting conversation and I'm really happy to be part of this conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Siman. Thank you for the wealth of examples. I think that was really interesting and interesting that both you and Jamie brought up these development approaches to community engagement. I think we would definitely agree with that. And um, the report on the Rohingya from this study was had a special focus on participation and that came out as well um, as something that, especially in protracted displacement situations where it is not only a humanitarian response, it's, it's about a longer term response. Um, thinking about community empowerment, community governance um, through a development lens is, is really critical. So thank you so, so much for this. Um, and also great that you're bringing that, uh, both you and Jamie brought up that, that link between inclusion and localization. We have found in this report that in this study that that was critical, that um, inclusion needed to be localized, localization needed to be inclusive. And all of this needs to be participative and based on this right to participation and with a lot of accountability. And we feel that, um, and maybe going back to what Jamie was saying, that there is a real, um, a real opportunity to really think through um, the localization reform agenda, the participation revolution, the accountability to affected people, um, the work that's ongoing around AAP and inclusion to come together and really think about what that means as a as a as a program of reform um, in policy as well as in practice. So it's great that both of you have brought this together. Um, great. I have a few questions from the floor. So let me uh, just put some of these uh, back to you, panelists, and please um, feel free to all answer as you wish or not. Um, I have a first question, which is directed uh, more specifically to Elham, but um, others can feel free to also. Uh, uh, respond from Shadin, um, who says organizations tend to rely on individual experts or advisors for inclusion. So, for example, gender advisors um, at all levels, whether in programming or even at headquarter level or even in hiring policies and in human resources. Um, and given the comments made by Elham on the necessity to mainstream inclusion and inclusive approaches, what are practical ways to ensure that this thinking is ubiquitous across all those implementing a project as opposed to our current reliance on approval from a focal point who is often not involved in actual project implementation. Um, and maybe if you want to take note of this, so what are the practical ways to mainstream this? I have also a second question from Lili from Indonesia, who is currently working on an ARAF uh, project looking at inclusive WASH in human responses. Um, and Lily, feel free to also send that link in the chat so that everybody can see that. 
um, who um, says, while all white actors agree that inclusion is essential, one of the barriers is disability and older age inclusion was not seen as a shared responsibility during the response. For some, inclusion is not within their organization's main focus or mission. As a result, WASH actors did not allocate enough time, resources, and knowledge to ensure inclusion in their programming. How can we reframe the inclusion agenda to become everyone's business in practice to ensure inclusive, effective, and impartial humanitarian responses that leave no one behind? Um, so these are the questions. Um, I think, Alan, over to you first. Um, thank you so much for the great questions. Um, on the second question from Lily on what we can do to make the, uh, you know, overcome the fact that uh, inclusion, some, some organizations assume that inclusion is not their responsibility and how to achieve the uh, inclusion being shared responsibility of everyone. I think to be practical, donors can play an important role in here then um, providing funding, then launching calls for funding, then, then responding to funding requests to ensure that inclusion and um, having inclusive approach and uh, uh, programs, policies, um, rules, procedures in place for inclusion in place is uh, one important and efficient uh, tool for that because then organizations would realize that, yes, of course, they need to be inclusive. Of course, advocacy is another tool to achieve that. So supporting local organizations to do advocacy with uh, humanitarian actors, humanitarian organizations to assume the inclusion responsibility is another tool. And that's exactly um, what, for example, organizations like my organization, the International Suezi Alliance, is hoping to do to provide the local actors with the tools that they need to do advocacy for these purposes. Of course, um, capacity building, awareness raising, informing the actors that responsibility, uh, that inclusion is responsibility of everybody. And then that interesting question about uh, people uh, like having special like, like inclusion experts and how to mainstream. So, um, one thing is about defining and outlining the job responsibility of that inclusion expert. That inclusion expert doesn't mean that the inclusion is not responsibility of everyone else, but inclusion expert is there. So if you have any questions, come uh, concerns, or you don't know what to do to be inclusive in a certain piece of work, you can go to the inclusive um, advisor and uh, they are responsible to do the monitoring and evaluation. But um, so part of it is to uh, including like job responsibility of that inclusion advisor, um, providing and ensuring that inclusion is part of the capacity building activities that is happening in organizations. So uh, all staff are being um, trained or being informed about inclusion and how to be inclusive in their work. And experience shows that having a help desk system is very helpful. So part of the reason that people do not touch inclusion is that they don't know how to. So if they have a, a kind of practical, easy to access, quickly responding practical um, system in place that they can go to and ask uh, their questions and put forward their concerns and challenges and get practical answers, that would be 
um, much easier for them to work on uh, inclusion because I assume that most people want to be like they, there's no like intention that I don't want to be inclusive. The fact, the reality is that people don't know how to, and with a lot of pressure and what we just heard about, like um, uh, being quantitative and uh, scorecards and all of that, people are just rushed. So whenever they don't have enough information or they don't feel confident on doing something, they prefer to say, oh, there's a specialized person for that, so I'm not going to touch this. So I think um, by providing technical support systems uh, in organizations, we can somehow try to address that and move towards addressing that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elam. Um, and before others maybe raise their hand or um, indicate to me if you want to speak, but interestingly, when we were doing the study, um, there were quite a few people in the field who were saying, well, you know, if my country director tells me I should be concerned about this, then I will, but nobody's telling me. And I think that's an interesting thing that in itself, the silence in it being on the agenda of responders of, of non-specialists in, in, in humanitarian responses was felt to be um, quite an obstacle. Um, Jamie, over to you. Um, and then I see time is running out. So now I'll come back to everybody with the final. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I mean, just to pick up on that point about the, the inclusion advisor, I mean, to me, um, you're a humanitarian coordinator in an emergency. You've got a, a gender advisor, a PSEA advisor, you've got a ProCAP, you've got GenCAP, you've got a human rights advisor, you've got somebody doing AAP, somebody doing localization, now you've got inclusion. I mean, where are they all, all those people sitting and where are they advising and how are they advising? It strikes me it's it's, uh, it's leading to a more fragmented approach. We have to find a way of making it much more coherent. We saw it in the protection cluster where the protection cluster ends up having areas of responsibility, child protection, land, property and rights. You have, um, you know, GBV and all that stuff. And these are things that are funded by donors. And so rather than have... Uh, coherence, you end up with fragmentation and donors fund specific agencies because of their pet agencies or their favoured agencies or their pet projects. And it just creates an imbalance rather than the coherence. So I, I, I'm not sure whether an inclusion advisor would be something that would be helpful for the humanitarian country team and the humanitarian response. Great, thank you for this. Um, and I think while, you know, I think we would say they can be, um, definitely it would be better to have empowered leaders who can themselves think about these questions um, and think through those questions. Um, I have a couple of other questions um, and we have a couple few more minutes. So I'm quickly going to go to these questions. Um, one person is asking how we think, um, how you think that the IAC guidelines on the inclusion of persons with disabilities in United Action and the operationalization of these guidelines can close the gap on what we mentioned, the need to adopt strong overarching policies on inclusion, especially given the fact that they give four easy to memorize and practical must do actions. Um, so do they close that gap? And maybe Oli and Sarah, you can maybe take that one on. And then I have a final question, um, which I think is a bit controversial, um, uh, asking whether there are any kind of sanctions organizations omitting their responsibility on inclusion and have these sanctions ever been implemented how have they had any impact so um interesting one um maybe Sima from a donor angle is that something you would want to see I don't know um but if I can have um anybody who wants to maybe Ali and Sarah if I can start with you um on these questions around the disability uh, guidelines and then final words uh, from anybody who wants to have a final word um over to you 
Hi there. I can I can speak very briefly to the the idea of guidelines. Um, I think one of the things we found in the research is guidelines have been hugely important in kind of changing the tone um, and sort of the the rhetoric around inclusion. Um, and I don't want to take away from that fact. And I also want to acknowledge, as my colleague often mentions with regards to cash, that change in the humanitarian sector does happen very gradually. Um, but at the moment, um, I guess there are two points. One is that we're not really seeing guidelines kind of being systematically transformed into action, and that's partially linked with kind of the, the leadership structures and the incentive structures for actually following up on them. Um, and another is this question of fragmentation and kind of the profusion of different guidelines. And we had in one of our workshops people saying that they now needed guidelines to the guidelines to be able to, to um, kind of understand which ones they should follow. So I think guidelines are really, really important. I think sort of questions of contextualizing those are critical and making sure they can be kind of practically applied in context, but they also need to be situated within a framework of, of incentives and an acknowledgement that this stuff is actually really hard at operational level. Like we've mentioned sort of the, the four easier to remember, easy to remember things, one of which is meaningful participation, which is really, really difficult and very, very few people are actually doing. So I think guidelines are a fantastic start. Um, and I think it's fantastic that the IASC has just put out, for example, a new a new set of principles on participation as, as again, a contribution to, to that sort of shift in rhetoric. Um, but they're one step on a much longer road. And I think, as you can see from our research, we're not quite there yet due to some other barriers. Great. Sarah, I don't know if you have a final word. Uh, no, Seema, any final words uh, from these questions and from the conversations? Um, look, I, I guess to add to what um, Oliver was just saying, that um, I think that the real trick is is about practical application principles, and I agree with Ilana. There's no no one sort of. I think there's no intention to exclude, but but it is um, clearly a problem um, and something that we all have to be much more intentional about. Um, in terms of the question on sanctions for, for organisations not meeting obligations, I think that's a really interesting question um, and something that has been discussed in our, in our, within our organisation in terms of, well, what do you use, carrots or sticks? For the most part, we tend to be using carrots and trying to incentivise um, greater, um, like better, better action. Um, and, and I think that there's, there's a fundamental question there, like what, what else could be used, how else, how better can we use incentives um, and, and other things. And it probably means working with other partners and Australia is sort of a middle-sized donor in a lot of, not, not so much in Bangladesh, where we're quite a big donor, but in some of these, um, in some of these um, responses, we're, we're a middle-sized donor. So working with others can tend to be a bit more powerful. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have these conversations too about, well, how much are we, what's the ambition level? Are we trying to change practice in our own institution? Or are we talking about a much bigger, more transformative system-wide change? And, and I agree, I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult um, difficult one, including some of the in infrastructure that's around the system that, that doesn't really lend itself to this kind of thing. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. And I'm afraid we've, we've run out of time very fast. Um, I would like to thank all of you, all of our panelists for the great contribution to this conversation and their thoughtful comments. I would also like to thank the audience and the chat. I haven't had really time to look at the chat, but I saw there were some interesting uh, points of conversations. I also wanted to um, uh, ask or to encourage you to join us on the 11th of May for the inclusion framing session, which is 
the main inclusion um, session organized by the common area, the area of common concern. So please do join us and sign up on the uh, HPN um, H HNPW website. So that's on the 11th of May, the inclusion framing session. And thank you very much, everybody, um, for this conversation and for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.